The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, where we're coming, we're at the final chapter of our study in this wonderful epistle, chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. Give heed as I read the word of God. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Francis Schaeffer was a pastor, a theologian, and an insightful defender of the gospel in the 20th century. I remember getting to meet him back in 1976 in a living room reception in Fort Worth, I didn't realize he always wore knickers, so I was somewhat surprised at his appearance. Uh, He was touring the nation with his video series, How Should We Then Live? Schaefer knew what it was to face doctrinal disputes within the church that were painful and divisive. Yet at the same time, one of the most powerful elements of his teaching was the call to strive to maintain love within the body of Christ. In his well-known book, The Mark of the Christian, he writes these words, Through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They have worn marks in the lapels of their coats, hung chains about their necks, even had special haircuts. But there is a much better sign. It is a universal mark that is to last through all ages of the church until Jesus comes back. Of course, Schaefer was speaking about the mark of love. No doubt he was thinking of verses such as John 13, where Jesus says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And our text this morning likewise emphasizes the calling of all Christians to be devoted to brotherly love and other related fruits of the Spirit's transforming work in a believer's life. We want to look at this text under three points. One is the call to brotherly love in verses 1 to 3, and then the call to purity in verse 4, and our third point, the call to contentment in verses 5 and 6. So first, the call to brotherly love. Let brotherly love continue. It's interesting that word continue is a synonym for persevere, and this book has been about perseverance. 
In this final chapter of Hebrews, the writer has completed the main section of the letter, and now he's giving his readers concluding words of encouragement and exhortation to them. He spent many chapters we've seen, if you've been with us, setting forth the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ. Jesus is supreme over angels. He's supreme over Moses. He's supreme over the whole Old Testament Levitical priesthood. In fact, we've seen that Jesus is the perfect and all-sufficient high priest, the only mediator by which we can come to God and be saved. And so we've been told, trust in him. Trust in his sacrificial death to, to pay for your sins. Trust in his, in his victorious resurrection to give you newness of life in him. And especially the message of this book has been saying and calling these, these struggling Christians who were facing increased persecution not to give up their allegiance in Christ, their faith in Christ. Keep holding fast the author has been telling them, keep holding fast to Christ. We saw the final warning at the end of chapter 12 in verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. That's Jesus who's speaking from heaven through His gospel, through His word. And then we saw the conclusion of chapter 12 with that beautiful summary of our hope in Christ in verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. The only right response for, for being made a partaker of the kingdom, being brought into the kingdom through Jesus Christ and His work, the only right response is worship. But now, As we move into chapter 13, we must realize that these practical exhortations are not separate from the issues of true worship. Rather, a life of daily worship will overflow in a life of love and holiness and service. In other words, love to God overflows in love to others. These are not things that we're called to do in order to merit anything. We have received the unmerited favor of God in Jesus Christ. So this call to brotherly love is not something secondary or optional. It is is part and parcel of a life of daily devotion and worship. Now, love is always expressed in concrete actions. Husbands, you love your wife, you won't forget your anniversary, right? I hope that's the case. And our passage provides two important examples, concrete examples of brotherly love. The first is in verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Brotherly love, the word you probably know, Philadelphia, is the Greek word for that, from the city, um, the city is named after that. Uh, that speaks of love that characterizes family relationships, close, familiar love, family love. So this call to show hospitality to strangers teaches us that family love of Christians is to be very wide, certainly. 
It reminds us, doesn't it, of Jesus' answer to the Pharisee who asked the question, and who is my neighbor? And we know that he was defining neighbor very narrowly, and Jesus' famous answer was his parable of the Good Samaritan. And if you know anything about Jews and Samaritans, you know that they were not very friendly to one another. The main idea of hospitality is bringing other people into our homes in some way, a practical demonstration of love. In the ancient world, we know uh, traveling was often dangerous, and there weren't very many inns or places to stay. They didn't have Hampton Inn. They didn't have the Marriott. They didn't have Motel 6 even. And today, we would say with the Western world and our compartmentalized lives, when often neighbors don't even know each other's names, Christian hospitality is no less significant. Many of you were here this summer for the conference we had with Rosaria Butterfield speaking about the themes of her newest book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. The idea that extending love and hospitality to others is to be a meaningful part of our Christian witness and our Christian walk. Verse 2 includes this interesting statement about the spiritual realities of hospitality. It says, uh, For thereby some have entertained angels unaware, unawares. In other words, they didn't know they were angels. And the most famous Old Testament examples of that are in Genesis 18 and 19, where uh, Abraham and Lot are involved. And Abraham in Genesis 18 sees strangers coming to his tent. And he rushed from his tent and uh, immediately had a calf butchered for them and prepared a meal and served them. And only later did he learn that they brought news as messengers of the Lord. And then in Genesis 19, we know that Lot extended hospitality to two travelers who were in the town square. And he brought them into his home and we know they ended up being angels. And these angels delivered him and his family from the destruction and ruin that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this mention of angels here, that uh, you might be entertaining angels, uh, is not necessarily encouraging the readers or us to expect that uh, the people they serve with hospitality will likely turn out to be powerful supernatural beings. I mean, that could happen. But he is telling them of the spiritual blessing of hospitality, that the people we love and serve in this way will often prove to be true messengers of God in some sense, that we will receive a greater blessing than we give. As Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Think of it this way. When we extend hospitality to one another with brotherly love, we are serving those who will one day reign in glory with Christ. C.S. Lewis, in his famous essay, The Weight of Glory, spoke about what, what an extraordinary thing it is to live among those in whom eternal destinies are being worked out. And the most famous quote is the one I'm going to give you here. You've maybe heard it before. He says, the dullest and the most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. 
You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What a quote. Just think, Lewis is saying the people around us are headed for an eternal destiny. And when we extend hospitality in some way, whether it's having someone over for coffee or driving someone to church or transporting a refugee to the doctor or taking someone a meal, if you are serving a brother or sister in Christ, you are serving a saint of God in light. And in fact, in Matthew 25, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We are ultimately serving Jesus Christ, our Lord. The other example of brotherly love is given in verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Here is the principle of sympathy for the trials experienced by others. And that phrase, since you also are in the body, means that you're in the human condition. All of us know something of suffering and hardship. And in different seasons of our lives, we have it more or less. We're in the body. And Jesus identified with us in coming to to the earth, coming in flesh, very likely there were those in the congregation that's being addressed here who had been imprisoned for their faith at some point. In those days, it was often the case that those in prison depended on their friends to even bring them daily food. November is the month designated for special prayer for the persecuted church. We've been praying for our brothers and sisters around the the world. What a good reminder to pray for our suffering brothers around the world. Many of you heard Pastor Bob Fu speak at our missions conference the other year. Bob is a Chinese national who came to Christ and who suffered for his faith in prison in China, and his wife was imprisoned as well, not with him, but in another place. And eventually they were released, and eventually they were able to escape to the United States. But one thing I especially remember from reading Bob's book was the encouragement and help he received when his family, he and his family finally settled in the Philadelphia area. They had very little money. They were were living in a very small apartment, raising small children. But they were inundated by pleads, pleas from Christians in China to help them who were seeking to escape, and, and somehow they had been in touch with, with the Fus. They were crying out, can you help us? And Bob and his wife were running themselves ragged with all these needs. And then one day, they got an unexpected phone call from someone in a church in Midland, Texas. They didn't even know where Midland, Texas was. And this person said, we've heard of your work. We want to help you. We want to support you. We think that you need a better support system. We'd like to hire an office manager for you to help with all the correspondence. We need, you need to get computer systems up and running. And what a wonderful call and eventually help that was. A turning point in their ministry and in their lives and a vital ministry to the persecuted church. That Midland church was obeying The command of verse 3. By the way, the Foos live in Midland now. 
Well, before we go on to our next point, notice the verbs in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, do not neglect. Verse 3, remember. It seems that one of the main problems we have in practicing brotherly love is that we neglect, we forget. Why is that? It's because brotherly love takes effort, does not come easily. It requires intentionality. In other words, our problem is that we tend to be too wrapped up in ourselves, in our own lives. We need to stir ourselves to heed this call to brotherly love. But second, there's this call to purity in verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The church is called to love, but love is not the only virtue. It stands together with the holiness that is of the Lord. For God has said, you shall be holy, for I am holy, 1 Peter 1.16. And here in our text, we see two primary examples of holiness, turning away from sexual immorality, and in our next point, turning away from greed. But look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. The first century Roman world was a lot like ours. A culture sinking deeper and deeper into depravity. A culture marked by sexual indulgence of all kind and sexual perversion. And so in our day, you can't read the newspaper without seeing some latest scandal or some arrest for terrible deeds. In fact, as we all know now, even the very definition of marriage itself has has been abrogated by our government as biblically only between one man and one woman. And young people today, many of them, look at marriage as outdated, as just a piece of paper, as something they don't need but can ignore. But God's word stands firm, and marriage is instituted by God, and marriage is regulated by God. Listen to what the PCA pastor Rick Phillips says about honoring marriage. I think he states it so well. He says, who is to honor marriage? All of us, the whole church. We have a special, a special interest in upholding the institution of marriage and the actual marriages among us. Marriage is the first institution established by God and the, the basic building block of the church and society. There may be no better gauge today for the spiritual health of a congregation than the health of its marriages. Husbands and wives hold a precious trust before the Lord and the church. One of our great needs is the example of strong and godly marriages to encourage those who have never seen true love and to provide them with a model. And then he goes on to say this too, one of the greatest witnesses in our age will be Christian couples who faithfully meet the struggles of marriage with the grace and power of God. Along with that is the astonishing witness, as our world now judges it, of Christian singles who keep the marriage bed pure through self-control and godly restraint. Interesting, isn't it? All God's people have a vital interest in upholding biblical marriage, whether you're single or married, whether you're young or old, 
We need to teach and model these things to our children and to boldly and lovingly show something of Jesus Christ and His bride, the church, that it would be reflected to the world in our marriages. But the second half of verse 4 tells us that to uphold marriage means we must also turn away from sexual immorality and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. To let the marriage bed be undefiled is a call to purity of heart and life. And we know that's to both those who are married and those who are not yet married and those who have been married and are not anymore. That's clear from the explanatory phrase, for God will judge. I want us to see the seriousness of this warning. Yes, Christians can and do sometimes commit the worst of sins. We think of King David himself who committed adultery and other sins. But sexual sin is a potential idolatry that is often linked to God's judgment as it is here. We could look at Galatians 5, where the works of the flesh are described. And by the way, it's interesting that these lists almost always begin with that word sexual immorality. Fornication is the Greek word. And Galatians 5 concludes that list with, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Similar warning. Ephesians 5 Same thing, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or or impure, who is covetous, that is, an idolater, and notice how sexual immorality and covetousness and idolatry are all linked there, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And then there's that powerful verse in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Why does Scripture repeat these sobering warnings in the context of letters to believers? Yes, we believe that every sin is able to be forgiven by Christ. And in this life, all Christians will continue to struggle against sin and sinful desire. But no matter what kind of sin it is, a genuine Christian, these warnings are here so that a genuine Christian will realize that he or she needs to be hating that sin and warring against that sin and continuing to be repenting of that sin and going to Jesus Christ for grace to fight that sin and may need accountability within the body of Christ for spiritual power to be putting that sin to death more and more by the power of the Spirit. The threat of God's judgment is by no means the primary motive for Christian life and behavior. It's not. The main motive is the love of Jesus Christ poured out to us, that we rejoice that we've been saved from our sins and in gratitude and worship and faith, we live for Jesus Christ. But there are many secondary motives that Scripture gives, and one of them is a warning about judgment 
so that no one who professes faith in Christ may think that he or she can have their sin and be comfortable and at peace in their sin and still have assurance of saving faith. Those two are mutually exclusive. It's that serious. So don't give in to the seductive lies of the world, but seek to walk with Christ in a growing purity of heart and life. And then finally in our text, we find our third point, the call to contentment in verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. When you think of it, this is a surprising exhortation, isn't it? Why? Because back in chapter 10, verse 34, we read this, speaking about these same believers, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Wow, can any of us say that we've experienced that? In other words, probably 10 or 15 years beforehand, these Christians had lost some or all of their earthly possessions because of their faith in Christ, because of their profession of faith and their courageous stand for Christ. But still, the calling to contentment in Christ is never something we stop learning. It was true for them. They needed to be exhorted. It's true for us. We all know that. Whatever your state in life, no matter how rich you are, no matter how poor you are, no matter how middle of the road you may be, whether you're young or old or healthy or not healthy, it is always going to be a fight of faith to trust in our faithful Savior and to rest in His promise, His faithfulness, to be content in the Lord. There's a little book by the Puritan pastor, Jeremiah Burroughs, called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he says this at one point in the book about contentment and worship. Listen to him. He says, you worship God more by contentment than when you come to hear a sermon or spend a half hour or an hour in prayer or when you come to receive a sacrament. These are only external acts of worship. But contentment is the soul's worship to subject itself thus to God by being pleased with what God does. What a beautiful description. Contentment is the soul's worship. I love that quote. What is Burroughs saying? He's saying contentment is the fruit of a heart resting in God, trusting in Christ. And in our verses, we have these beautiful Old Testament quotes from Joshua chapter 1 and Psalm 118, and they're given to us as extraordinary promises of God to help us that we might be enabled and put the anchor of our faith in these holds, these footholds, we might say. He has promised never to leave nor forsake us. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Here is the antidote to our fear of man that clings to all of us. Here is 
the way, the pathway to build contentment by trusting the promises of God. Jesus has promised He will never leave us or forsake us. I couldn't help but think of that as we sang the last verse of our middle hymn. Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet am I not forsaken. We know that's, that would be a very hard thing, some of those deep sufferings. Christ is with us. We may lose everything in this world. Jesus Christ will never forsake us. A week ago, the world celebrated the 30th anniversary of the fall of the wall in Berlin. Many of us lived through that, the Iron Curtain, as it was called in those days, separating free and democratic West Germany from Soviet-controlled East Germany. And the images, maybe you saw them last weekend, of people hammering with sledgehammers on that wall and the rejoicing and the weeping. Well, a few months after that wall came down in March of 1990, a Christian worker in East Germany wrote this letter to supporters in America. And I want us to see this as an example of Christ-like love and hospitality. Last week, they write, the former communist dictator, Eric Honecker, was released from the hospital where he had been undergoing treatment for cancer. There is probably no single person in all of East Germany that is more despised and hated than he. He has been stripped of all his offices, and even his own Communist Party has kicked him out. He was booted out of the villa he was living in. The new government refuses to provide him and his wife with accommodation. They stood, in essence, homeless on the street. It was Christians who stepped in. Pastor Holmer, who is in charge of a Christian help center north of Berlin, was asked by church leaders if he would be willing to take them in. Pastor Holmer and his family decided that it would be wrong to give away a room in the center that would be used for needy people or an apartment that their staff needed. Instead, they took the former dictator and his wife into their own home. It must have been a strange scene when the old couple arrived. The former absolute ruler of the country was being sheltered by one of the Christians whom he and his wife had despised and persecuted. In East Germany, there was a great deal of hate toward the former regime and especially toward Honecker and his wife, Margot, who had ruled the education system there for 26 years with an iron hand. She had made sure that very few Christian children were able to go on for higher education. There are 10 children in the Holmer family, and eight of them had applied for further education in the course of the past years. All had been refused a place at college because they were Christians. In spite of the fact that they had good or excellent grades in school, Pastor Homer was asked why he and his family would open their door to such despicable people. Pastor Homer spoke very clearly. Our Lord challenged us to follow him and to take in all who are weary and heavy laden, both in soul and in body. What an answer. I don't know what the impact of all this was on the hearts of the Hanukkahs, But what a display of the glory and grace of Jesus Christ in people's lives. 
Brothers and sisters, let us follow our Lord in the way of love and purity and deep and abiding contentment in him. Let us pray. Father, we sense that we are on the edge of deep and powerful realities. How you uphold your people, how you give spiritual hope and life and grace to follow our Lord Jesus Christ in the power that he gives. Grant us grace this week to live for Jesus, to give our all for Jesus Christ out of gratitude to him. In his name we pray, amen.